Hello, and welcome to the Charter Cities podcast. I'm your host, Mark Lutter, the founder and executive director of the Charter Cities Institute. On the Charter Cities podcast, we illuminate the various aspects of building a charter city, from governance to urban planning, politics to finance. We hope listeners to the Charter Cities podcast will come away with a deep understanding of charter cities, as well as the steps necessary to build them. You can subscribe and learn more about charter cities at chartercitiesinstitute.org. Follow us on social media, cci.city on Twitter, and Charter Cities Institute on Facebook. Thank you for listening. My guest today is Mark Koyama, an economic historian at George Mason University. His recent book, co-authored with Noel Johnson, is Persecution and Toleration, The Long Road to Religious Freedom. We talk about state capacity, religious toleration, as well as political competition. Welcome to the show, Mark. Hi, Mark. Great to be here. So to start, you recently published a book. So can you tell us about that? And it was really focused on on state capacity, in in particular state capacity and religious freedom. Yeah, tell us about that. So the book is called Persecution Toleration, The Long Road to Religious Freedom. It's with my colleague at George Mason, Noel Johnson. And it was published in 2019 by uh, Cambridge University Press. And the purpose of a book is to ask how we get modern liberal societies. And it's viewing that big question through the lens of religious freedom. Because if you look at the history of liberalism or liberal societies, the, the key freedom which people were most agitated for and led to, led to the development of liberalism more generally was actually religious freedom. And it takes a long historical perspective. So it really begins by asking kind of fundamental questions like, you know, why, why do states have this relationship with religion, why do they uh, coerce religious kind of beliefs? And then how, how from like, you know, almost a Roman empire through the Middle Ages, through the early modern period, how you can get the gradual emergence of religious freedom. Cool. So this strikes me as a little bit of a different perspective. Most people, when they think of liberalism, their primary motivating definition of liberalism isn't going to be religious freedom. I, at least my intuition is that if you ask kind of the, the modern educated layman, they will say religious freedom is an important set of kind of indicators of a liberal state. But there are other indicators kind of that might be things like, I don't know, due process before the law, right? Democracy, which is sometimes conflated with liberalism and sometimes distinct rule of law. So where do you see religion as fitting in with these different inputs? And why do you rank it as kind of more important than them? So it's true. So rule of law is definitely an important component of a liberal state and and, and definitely a crucial one. The the reason we focus on religious freedom is if you think about the period at which liberal states emerge, so the definition of liberal states go vary, but let's think about kind of the 18th and 19th century, when you get states kind of move decisively towards being more liberal, at least as an organizing principle. So as an organizing principle, actually, it's good to leave people alone when they're not doing anything which is not harming others, or there should be, it's valuable to have a, a private sphere of, you know, a private life away from the state. Those are not seen as kind of, admirable or important characteristics of a state in earlier periods in in history. And so it's the Reformation, the subsequent wars of religion, which kind of give rise to that being a core element of a liberal state. I think rule of law is also extremely important. And rule of law goes back further. You can trace kind of notions of rule of law, you know, to Magna Carta at the very least, if not earlier. And so rule of law is also part of this. But the religious dimension is definitely crucial. I think without the religious dimension, it's hard to see liberal case for freedom of speech, for example, emerging. Okay. How does this relate then to, right, like the Roman Empire? Because the Roman Empire had, I'm not sure if you would call it religious freedom in a modern sense, 
but they did allow for right like broadly kind of uh, polytheism a number of different like i don't know how to exactly describe it but like sex that allowed for like different i don't know religious ideals to to flourish in a way that's not like entirely analogous to modern religious freedom but it seems at least much more analogous to kind of modern religious freedom than the absolutist states of kind of the the, the late medieval period that uh, brings us to a key concept in our book which is the distinction between conditional toleration and religious freedom so Romans have a very eclectic view of, of religion. They, they're polytheists and they're willing to absorb other religions and to respect the religions of other people, especially if that religion is seen as having a lot of history. So that, that they, they have a lot of, they, they are willing to tolerate a lot of states, a lot of religions, but at no point in time have they ever committed to any liberal notion of religious freedom. So, so that's why when they encounter particular religious beliefs that they think are pernicious to the state, so the key examples of being both the Druid belief in Britain and Gaul, and also, of course, Christianity, there they're ruthless in suppressing and persecuting these religions. So the Romans, an example of conditional toleration, where the bounds of toleration are wide. Uh, other states later on, like in the Middle Ages, they, they also have some conditional toleration in the sense that they might give Jews some toleration, but only under very circumcised and limited spheres. Like they can't, they can practice their religion, but they can't convert other people. So the Roman Empire is eclectic, religiously eclectic, and allows a lot of different religious b- beliefs to flourish. But if any religious belief is at all at odds with the state, then they will um, repress it. I guess walk me through how that's different, because when I think about, for example, the U.S. today, which would rank, I think, very highly on any like modern religious or historical religious freedom score, I, I still think that there are going to be like certain, I don't know, restrictions. And so if you look back, right, the, the, the kind of condition for Utah becoming a U.S. state was the Mormons had to give up polygamy and had to become monogamous. It still seems to me that even though there's this, I don't know, like relatively high level of respect for religious freedom, under George Bush, we saw the, the mosque near kind of the, the former 9-11 site. There was a large outcry and, and prevented it from, from being built. And so while well, there still is this, I think, broad respect for, for religious freedom, it seems to me that at least the state sometimes does act against kind of these, I don't know, religious beliefs that are considered to be sufficiently like different from the existing spectrum and, and melu that, that is kind of socially accepted so it's a continuum yeah i i I take that point it's a continuum and so the but if you i think the distinguishing characteristics of liberal states is that they value religious freedom as one of their core freedoms and so that's like one of their core principles if that principle goes against like state security then it's there's going to be some compromise there but i think it is seen as a core core freedom so that's why you you get a lot more protection for religious objects you know if your religion needs you to object from public schools or from conscription or 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 organ donation you get more protections because it's religion than you would if it was just an ordinary preference but i i I accept this it's definitely a continuum what i would say is that prior to the emergence of liberal societies it's not no one articulates that there's a value to having religious freedom so the romans don't even though we don't happen to personally many religions apart from you know a few few which they seen as very they see as very subversive they never articulate that it's a positive value to have religious freedom so that is characteristic of, of, of liberal states i think that's where i would um place the emphasis cool so i guess we've been talking about religious freedom but the other i guess main theme of your book is is state capacity so what is state capacity and, and why does it matter so state capacity refers to the ability of states to enact their policies, and it often has two components. So you can think about one component being the ability to raise money to do the things states do, so that's fiscal capacity. The other capacity might be administrative capacity, 
uh, or sometimes called infrastructure power. That's the idea that the state can actually, when it sets out to do something, it, it can it can do it. So if it needs to build new hospitals to deal with a pandemic, it can do it relatively quickly. It can cordon off the country. It can it can enact those policies. So those policies could be good or bad, but it's a, it's a reference to the ability of the state to actually actually carry out its policies. Is there a good way to kind of get this, I guess, gut check understanding of state capacity? Because, right, this is a term that's really, I think, caught on recently that has a lot more people talking about it. Uh, Tyler Cowen did a well-known blog post on kind of state capacity libertarianism, I believe, December 31st, like January 1st last year. But I, I still feel that this concept isn't, I guess, as widely kind of accepted as it might otherwise be. So what's this gut check of, right, like, all right, if we're going to, I don't know, 16th century in the Holy Roman Empire, like what does state capacity look like there? And how do we like, compare that to what is kind of modern state capacity that we currently, I don't know, just like think of as, as reflexive? So I think the, the concept has caught on recently. I mean, it was used originally in the kind of 1980s by historical sociologists, people like Charles Tinney and Michael Mann. And so it, it's been used by these historical sociologists for some time. And then it caught on amongst kind of economists and economic historians, I think, following Besley Pearson's kind of papers and book around kind of 10, 10 years ago. So fairly recent, as you say, in economic history and, and economics. I think the gut intuition one should have is to think about states in many developing countries which are unable to do basic to function and, and provide basic public goods they can't provide a non-corrupt police force which can um police police the streets they can't necessarily you know collect a lot of taxes they can't administer a lot of welfare policies very very effectively and if you look at the middle ages or pre-modern states you'll see that the states these states often don't have many features of a state that we would imagine so they don't have police force they don't have a bureaucracy they don't have yeah, tax administration really. They're reliant on like, you know, a lot of small number of private individuals, say, collecting the taxes. So when we look at both across history and there's so many developing countries, we realize that the modern state, as we which we take for granted in America or in our textbooks, right? A, a state which can provide public goods, that's actually a, um, a recent phenomenon historically. I think that's one way one way to think about it. The other way where where I think Tyler Cowen's blog post is is relevant is if you think about uh, the ability to say do major reforms or build infrastructure, even in a, a country like America, the United States today has a bigger government than it had in say the 1950s. But in the 1950s, it seemed to build infrastructure like the highways much more effectively and much quicker, a lower cost than it can do so today. And similarly, if you look at China today, the Chinese state is 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 extremely powerful in, in many respects in bad ways, but it certainly is able to build things very quickly, and that. That seems to suggest some some relatively high level of state capacity, at least in some dimensions. Yeah, I mean, my favorite example of state capacity, I lived in uh, Honduras briefly. And when I was there, I took a bus to El Salvador. I remember the bus left at six in the morning or some very early time. And when I asked why, they told me, because if it leaves any later, then it's crossing the border at night. And there are highway bandits who will rob you if you go basically near the border at night. And so to me, that was a very kind of clear, okay, the state doesn't actually have a monopoly of violence in this area. I remember when I was traveling in in Peru, some armed people got on the bus and asked for donations, and they were kind of fighting a, I don't know exactly what it was, but some fight. And I mean, they weren't like sticking the guns at anybody. And I think if I did not donate to them, I probably could have been fine. And they were only asking for a few dollars, not like everything in your bag. But it was just like, okay, here are like armed guys who are like semi-official, but you can't really tell who are like 
right, like kind of asking for donations. And it's, it's just a, a, a dynamic that in the U.S., at least in, in my life, I, I have not experienced uh, uh, anything like that. From the U.S., my I think favorite example is the Golden Gate Bridge was built in the middle of the Great Depression and took three years. And they built what's effectively an on-ramp to the Golden Gate Bridge, like a mile and a half tunnel in the late uh, 2000s, early 2010s that took like seven years and, and, and a lot more money. Uh, and so just in terms of like, can you accomplish X within Y constraints, high state capacity, Y is, is, is lower, low state capacity states kind of y, y is much higher. Let's then tie this together, right? Like what can we understand about like the relationship between strong states and the, the treatment of uh, religious minorities? So tying them together, the strong states can persecute minorities and, and have done, but they can also protect them. So it's, it's, a, it's a double-edged sword, but you could get both outcomes. Whereas weak states cannot protect them. So weak states can either maybe persecute that much, but we can certainly not protect them. And so if you're living in a world where there's going to be religious conflict, ethnic conflict as well, but which often has a religious dimension, if you want to get robust religious freedoms, if you want to get the type of society where people of an unpopular religious minority can walk about on the streets doing their daily business, open shops, and not be subject to violence or, or, or kind of persecution, you need to have a state which is credible, and powerful enough to commit to their protection. That's that's the essence of the relationship. But this, that state can also persecute them. And, and and in the process of state building, states often have used minorities as scapegoats to persecute. So this is why this road to religious freedom is a is a road. It's a process. Whereas if you think about so the, one of the examples we have in our book is the Holy Roman Empire. So the Holy Roman Empire was fragmented into more than a thousand polities, uh, the Holy Roman Emperor himself had very little power. The main religious minority in the Holy Roman Empire, quite much from the Middle Ages, were Jewish communities. So there were Jews in most, well, certainly the larger towns and cities across the Holy Roman Empire. And nominally, they had some protection from the Holy Roman Emperor. So nominally, the position of both the church and the state was the Jews were to be discriminated against, but protected, not persecuted, not forcibly converted to Christianity. But at a local level, expulsions and pogroms were increasingly common, and they often, they often occurred after periods of economic hardship. Following the Black Death, there's a major series of pogroms, like the worst in European history prior to the 20th century. The emperor, even though he's nominally supposed to be protecting the Jews, either doesn't do so, or only does so selectively in those areas where it's kind of worth his while, or he has the ability to do so. And so... That that's one example of state weakness leading to kind of persistent episodes of re- reoccurring persecutions, which is a little bit different to the example, but what you see in other European countries. There's sort of, our, I guess, are two dimensions there. One is the Black Death leading to the pogroms, and then the other is state weakness. But if we're thinking about the Holy Roman Empire, should we think about the Holy Roman Empire as being a weak state, or should we think about kind of the individual principalities or city states? Because if I'm thinking about kind of the late medieval period. And I'm thinking about areas with high capacity. I would think that, for example, a lot of the Hanseatic League, those city-states, probably had reasonably high, I mean, they're not like independent states, but they are semi-autonomous cities that that probably ranked like relatively high, at least for their time with with state capacity. Yeah, that's a a good point. They they are like, in terms of local administrative state capacity or ability to provide conditions for markets, these city-states are actually relatively high state capacity. I know more a little bit about Italy, actually, than I do about the, the Hanseatic League. Well, I know something about the Hanseatic League, but the internal organization of, say, Florence is much better documented. And so Florence and Venice are the city-states in Italy, which are pioneering state-capacity institutions like public debt, 
for example, and, and also taxation. So certainly, when state capacity is built in the Middle Ages, it's often built at a local level. The issue the Jews have is twofold. There are two, two issues which I think are important to explain. One is that this is the nature of the pogroms, particularly during the Black Death, is this rumor, which is untrue, that the Jews have poisoned the wells. And so what happens is in one city, they torture some Jews into confessing and poison the wells, and then they, they execute them. And the news of this spreads across Germany. And so people think, well, they, they commit being admitted to poisoning the wells, so we've got to kill our Jewish community or expel them before the plague gets here. And so there's a negative externality. So if once if one city state decides to enact a pogrom or, or, or commit persecution, it's actually a negative externality, a spillover effect and it, in terms of rising anti-Semitism, which, which hits other cities. And so the fragmented nature of the Holy Roman Empire seems to have some unintended negative consequences in, in that respect. And that doesn't just happen with the Jews. It happens again in the 17th century, 16th, 17th century, when it comes to witch trials. The, the Holy Roman Empire, which is fragmented, has the worst witch trials by far in all, in all of Europe. And there seems to be a similar dynamic where they try a witch in one city or one village, and then neighbors hear about it, and they also persecute the witches. So the federal nature of the Holy Roman Empire, which might be good for some things, it might allow a lot of like variation in economic policies or tax rates. It's pernicious for building toleration. The final point I'd say just about the trade point and the Hanseatic League is that, so, so on the one hand, commerce and trade tends to make people relatively tolerant of, of the other, because if you're a merchant, you've got, you can make profit from trading with somebody, regardless of their religion or their ethnicity. So there's one thing in favor of, of, of commerce and trade. But on the other hand, in these um, city-states or these more prosperous mercantile towns, the Jews were often competing against Christian merchants. And so actually there's some substitution going on. And so sometimes these mercantile towns are actually quite willing to persecute their minority groups because they need them less economically, and they might have an interest group who has a vested interest or benefit if uh, if the Jews are sent away or expelled. So the dynamics are, co- are costly, uh, I mean complex, but what I would say is the Holy Roman Empire, in many sense, it seems to illustrate some of some pernicious features of a decentralized state system, rather than the beneficial features of, of one. Yeah, I think that, I find that interesting, because at least to me, if you ask me ex ante, what would be the impact of uh, I don't know, right, pogroms in, in one polity in the Holy Roman Empire without any prior knowledge, I would probably say, well, like that could spread. But the other option is another polity would say, especially like during the back death, okay, we have a population shortage. So we want to improve our relative position. And we can do that by attracting a population. And the Jews tend to be of like higher than average productivity. So we can just say, hey, like we won't persecute you if the neighbor's persecuting you, like come here. And now this gives us both like a population advantage as well as a commercial advantage over our neighbors and allows us to dictate terms better. So both ha- that happens as well. Exactly. Yeah. So Ravensburg, I think, is one town from memory which which accepts Jews, doesn't persecute them. So it's both both stories are true. So in the sense the following sense, the Black Death it's 1348, and they're in maybe 600 German towns that we know of, and there are pogroms in most, in many towns have pogroms and expulsions, many, many, but not all. So there are some towns where Jews are not uh, persecuted, and we can try and predict why that is. So there's a famous paper by uh, Joachim Voff and Nico Voigtlander called Persecution Perpetuated, where they actually exploit variation 
in these Black Death pogroms and link it with anti-Semitism in the 20th century. And so the, the claim of that paper is the cities which did not persecute Jews in the Black Death period also are less likely to support the Nazis and less likely to be anti-Semitic in the 20th century. So there is variation. So the Black Death the mechanism I said about this, the Black Death spreading pogroms is true. So there's so many more pogroms in the wake of the Black Death than there are previously or afterwards. So this this uh, dispersion of anti-Semitic kind of propaganda and so on is is really spreading out pogroms, but not everywhere is affected. And the places which don't persecute their Jews benefit economically. And later, actually, later episodes of plague don't result in pogroms in the same way the first Black Death does. And so maybe some cities, German cities, realize that there, there are economic benefits to having Jewish communities. And so some Jews are invited to return in the 15th century to German towns. That's interesting. So, I mean, this is like not exactly the topic of your book, but it's kind of related. How do you view the role of the development of state capacity with like the, the, the size of, of political units? Because there's some arguments that kind of the Montesquieu argument where one of the reasons that China never, for example, experienced the Industrial Revolution was because it was always homogeneous um, or always had a, a single state for most of its history, which allowed for effectively capture by political elites instead of mercantile elites. And then in Europe, kind of Montesquieu's argument is that because it has always been fragmented, uh, particularly in the late Middle Ages, which saw kind of the domination of city-states of uh, a lot of trade, that because there was this more competitive element, particularly at a local level, that allowed that, that required basically kind of innovation in in governance, which led to the right like kind of control of the merchant class of governments, which was like arguably a necessary precondition for the actual industrial revolution. This is a kind of classic argument about polycentricism, and I've actually got a new new paper on this uh, with Jesus Fernandez Villaverde, Bi Hong, and. Um, Tong Hui Singh uh, about this, this uh, trying to explain why Europe is more fragmented. What I think in relation to state capacity, this is why I kind of think about that question. Europe benefits from a lot of medium sized states, actually, is my, my view. So the city states, very small states are, uh, are important in the Middle Ages. And so you have the Holy Roman Empire, which is, you know, a thousand like, polities. You have Italy, which is divided up into many city states. And even within, you know, France or Spain, you actually have more, often more than one polity, like Burgundy, uh, Dauphiny, and, uh, and Gascony are almost independent or ruled by other monarchs. And Spain is divided into many kingdoms. But very small states are good for experimentation, but they're bad for military capacity because you have scale economies in, in warfare. So if you're divided up into loads of small states, then you, you're vulnerable to being invaded. And also you lose coordination, you, you lose benefits from coordination. For example, if you have thousands of states in Europe, say, and they each have their own tariffs, then obviously market integration is going to be really impeded. So their benefits to fragmentation, the most important being, I think, innovation. So, uh, you know, potential thinkers or innovators, if they're threatened or have a hostile environment and one state can move to another. There are other benefits from kind of competition, from experimentation and different forms of kind of policy and uh, different administrative forms. But if you're too small, you can't realize economies of scale. You're going to have too many wars. You're going to be vulnerable to invasion and you're going to have too many trade barriers. So Europe, uh, after the Middle Ages, as states consolidate in the early modern period, is characterized by a large number of medium-sized states. And I think medium-sized states are uh, important. So if you think about the important innovations in constraining the state, in protecting property rights, you know, to building a, uh, a fiscal administration, building a public debt, they emerge in city states like Florence and Venice, and then they move to states like the United Provinces of the Netherlands, which is also fairly small. But in bo- both Florence and, and the United Provinces of the Netherlands, are threatened by invasions from, say, France and Spain. 
So what, what's decisive before the Industrial Revolution is that England, which is a medium-sized state, adopts basically these Dutch stroke Italian institutions of like, you know, public debt, uh, limited government. And that happens with the Glorious Revolution. They quote-unquote adopt. Yeah, they're invaded by, um, by William of Orange and, um, and, and end up copying the Dutch institutions and then they do better than the Dutch. So, so I think medium-sized states are equal, relatively similar-sized medium-sized states are important. And they, they act as a check on e- each other. Uh, this is kind of an argument that um, historian at Stanford called Walter Shadell makes in a, in a recent book called Escape from Rome. Okay, so that the argument is that kind of city-states lead to the development of these new institutional forms, but it really requires a medium-sized state that has the internal market that can then make full use of these new governance innovations to, to really like take, take them to the next level. Yeah, I think so. I mean, the city-states do well later in like 20th century, right? So you think about Hong Kong or Singapore, but they do well, you might say, because they have some kind of security umbrella for maybe America or NATO. So they they struggle with, if you're a small city state and you want to raise a big army to fend off a predator, you're going to have to raise a lot of taxes on a per capita level. And that might dampen your your growth in the long run. Yeah. In the book, you briefly kind of discuss the role of, of, of firepower, particularly kind of with cannons and how they change the nature of forts. So one of the, one of the questions that I've often I guess thought about with respect to economic history is right the the impact of both uh, offensive and defensive weaponry on state building, where one of the arguments is that um, for example right like the modern state is dependent on muskets because with muskets it's a very cheap arm that does not take a lot of cost and so you can just get a hundred thousand people and give them all a musket and with that it's it's then mobilization becomes much more valuable. Well, if you're thinking about kind of the, the, the medieval period with knights, knights are very expensive to equip. You need horses, you need skilled labor to produce armor, etc. And then they, their offensive capabilities are limited, where all you need to do to kind of restrict those capabilities is, is build a wall. And that, that strengthens city-states and, and those types of jurisdictions. So how does the relationship between kind of the, the relative cost of, moder- of offensive and defensive weaponry influence state building? I think you summarized it perfectly, actually. That's that's the, that's exactly the right argument, I think, about the costs. Because, I mean, we to the, to the extent that we know, longbows seem, at least by some studies, more effective than, than early muskets. If you didn't know about the economics of these weapons, you might think that, like, why, why don't the English keep using the longbow into the you know, 16th, 17th century, given it's you could fire a longbow far more rapidly than you could fire a musket, basically. And so it's only around the early 19th century do we think that musket power or the gunpowder was ob- weapons are obviously better than longbows, at least at short range. Because the longbow, you can fire, like, I think, six times a minute. Uh, the answer to that question isn't the effectiveness of a longbow. That's irrelevant. Or, not irrelevant. That's not the main point. The main issue about longbow is that to use it effectively, to have the ability of an uh, English archer, as I You need to train for like 10 years. <laughs> yeah, you need to train from childhood. These guys have one of their arms is bigger than the other arm because it's so so demanding. And you have to you have to train continuously. So the English king famously banned football because they, um, they wanted uh, people to practice archery. And so you can only raise a relatively small number of archers and it's very costly to do so. And if you need, if you need to meet a sudden military need, you can't raise, yeah, 100,000 of these guys uh, ever, basically. And over time, as, as you get more, as, in the 16th century, England's at peace most of the time, then it becomes impossible to maintain the training you require for a longbow. So, so the, the benefit of gunpowder weapons is their cheapness and their ability to scale. The only thing I'd add to your argument was the offensive power of artillery. So 
until the late 15th century, the walls of European cities, like if you could build tall walls, like someone like Florence, you know, the city walls mean that it's very difficult to besiege that city. But artillery in the late 15th century, it means you can break down city walls, especially initially because the city walls are tall, they're tall and thin, so they're very vulnerable to cannon. And so that really dramatically changes the, the odds in favor of the larger states like France and Spain against the city-states. And you see that, that's, that's exactly the period when the city-states kind of lose a lot of political and military importance. And so how does that fit into, say, capacity? I mean, my intuition is that with cheaper arms, that then drives more demand for state capacity, because if you can then round up 10,000 peasants and all give them uh, a musket, that tends to be much more impactful than rounding up 10,000 peasants and giving them all pikes. Yeah, so it, it generally allows certain polities, like France as being the notable one on the continent, England later, most I guess Spain and uh, some others, it allows certain polities to mobilize larger armies and to consolidate their states. The Holy Roman Empire notably fails, but within the Holy Roman Empire, some states eventually do this, Prussia being one of them, but not, not the only one. So it's it, the lower cost of, 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 of scaling up your army is going to benefit some states over and above others. What you see is the impact being um, heterogeneous. So some states do this and then succeed. So Prussia being one. Other states don't do this for whatever reason and, and effectively fail. So the classic example is normally Poland. So Poland-Lithuania is a very large, very decentralized polity in, in 1600. And by 1800, it's disappeared. To, I guess, switch gears a little bit, you talked about the Black Death and how that increased persecution among Jews. So what, what does the Black Death, I guess, Im- imply about immigration? Because the Black Death is typically used to, real wages went up substantially because the, the cost of land and capital were lower, and therefore the cost of labor were, were higher. So it basically boosted peasant wages. And I, I remember some studies uh, looking at, for example, the wages of, I believe, women during World War II, when most of the, the male workforce was at war in, in, in Europe or in Asia, that saw that female wages were boosted. But then if you look at right the, the most immigration studies, they find that a bunch of migrants moving to an area does not change, substantially change the, the wages of the, the local population. So so how do you, I guess, square these two challenges? Okay, that's a, yeah. So how big a labor shock do you need to affect wages is, is a question. So what I would say by way of answer is the Black Death actually has two, there are two elements of a shock. So the, the, the Malthusian part of the answer is the one you described, but the Black Death causes a labor shortage, at least in the kind of medium run. And so if there's a labor shortage and wages, wages will go up eventually. So that, that's, that's a true force, but it's also a massive trade disruption. And so you're, you're also dislocating the economy and you're killing so many people that you're, you're, you can think about this as like raising the transaction costs of trade. And so the Black Death isn't actually that clean an example because it, it does, it's a very negative shock to the economy on the supply side as well as a boost to the, I mean, as well as a labor scarcity shock. So what happens after Black Death is somewhat more complex than people often think. Nominal wages jump. But so do prices, because a lot, a lot of food is, a lot of the crops in the, in, in the land are not collected. So both nominal wages and prices, prices jump. The elites, the landlords, try to regulate the, the, the increase in wages. They try and limit the increase in wages. So actually, real wages don't go up instantly. It takes quite a long time for real wages to, to go up, but they do go up eventually. And they go up quite a lot as the population keeps on declining. They, they, they basically, eventually they double, but it takes a long time. It takes 100 years. But... When you look at more recently, there are a lot of reconstructions of per capita GDP. So see Broadbury and Colfer's reconstructed the GDP of England. And so per capita GDP goes up less than 
the real wages. And the intuition economically is to think about this as like a Smithian thing, a Smithian force. So Adam Smith said the division of labor is limited by the extent of the market. When you have a large market, which is tightly connected, people can specialize and they'll be productive. When you have a back death shop, the economy becomes simpler, at least initially. There are fewer people, so the market contracts to some degree. And so the Smithian benefits of specialization probably go down in in the short run. And so the economy doesn't benefit as much as the real wages of, of workers benefit, I think. And even then, the experience of different countries is different. So Spain doesn't have much of an increase in real wages, as far as we can tell, after the back death. And GDP per capita goes down, not up. So bringing that to modern immigration studies, one, you could say several things. Firstly, that the numbers of people who come as immigrants are sufficiently small that they're not necessarily as massive of an effect as a black death in terms of a number of the number of workers. Number two, who are they competing against? They're competing against only maybe other unskilled workers who are, again, a subset of the population. And from a Malthusian perspective, it's a relatively small shock. And from a Smithian perspective, they are expanding the size of the market. You have more customers, more people to buy stuff. Immigration is creating a bigger market, which is going to lead to some benefits. And so I think my view about immigration studies is that if you had open borders or if you allowed like a huge amount of migrants from the uns- unskilled, unskilled countries, you would get very big negative effects on real wages, at least at some, some sectors. But at the rates we're seeing, those, those, those effects are very muted. And they're also countervailing benefits in terms of these Smithian factors. Cool. So one, one of the things I noticed reading your book that I didn't really put together that there are several of these, mostly in France, what might be called, I don't know, persecutions of different Christian sects. So the Cathars, the Albigensians. And one of the things that, that I guess struck me as interesting is that these were kind of pre-Reformation. So there were these, I don't know, right, like splits that I guess hadn't been consolidated enough to be called a full-blown Reformation. So one, like, what is the economic intuition of why these are happening? And then two, typically the Reformation is explained via the, the printing press. So one, why was the persecution happening? And then two, why did these kind of splits, I guess, exist in the first place? What I would say is in the, in the early Middle Ages, after the fall of the Roman Empire, there are not many, that many organized heresies. There's some kind of old heresies, but they're just an intellectual. So a few random like heretical intellectuals might, might have these beliefs. They don't become mass movements. After around um, 1100, you get economic growth in Europe. So this is the so-called commercial revolution. And you also get a movement for papal reform. So the papacy institutes uh, a far more rigorous program of, say, clerical celibacy. They they have a campaign against cinnamony. So you really try and uh, reform the church from within and make it more kind of pure. And that generates a demand and and it becomes more popular. And you you have literacy gradually percolating through the population so this results both in the almost a religious revival that we see in all the cathedral building movements and the movements such as um, the Franciscans and so on. But it also generates would-be reformers who have the same, maybe they begin with the same motivation as, as the church, but they want to go further. And so they might begin by, you know, campaigning against the corruption of like individual clergymen, but they end up going further and they end up rejecting at some point the authority of Rome. So that's why they will be labeled heretics. And at the same time as, as that's happening, so you get these popular movements of Waldensians, the Albigensians uh, um, are two most prominent. At the same time as this is happening, you have European states developing, so like the French monarchy, uh, who, are, who are predicating their authority on their 
religious legitimacy. So the French king is like the most Christian king, and he um he he says he's like the enemy of heretics. And so you also get states persecuting these groups with with, with the church, and you have groups emerging to 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 oppose the church. But as you said, without the printing press, the appeal of these groups is relatively limited and relatively local. And so it's difficult for them to spread their message. And so they tend to be fairly localized. And the, you know, the degree of popular involvement is always relatively small. In addition to the two you mentioned, there are also the Lollards in England and then the Husserites in Czech Republic, who are the, the most like Protestant-like of these groups. But neither of them succeed. The church-state alliance is sufficiently strong to always repress these groups. And that changes in 1500. And there are several reasons why it changes, but the most kind of important one is Luther as a printing press. And Luther is a very good disseminator of kind of political propaganda. And is the political decentralization of the Holy Roman Empire, is that related to the Protestant Reformation being there? Why didn't it happen in France? It, exactly. Yeah. It's, it's crucial to it, I think, because the elective of Saxony protects Luther from the Holy Roman Emperor. So without that, it doesn't happen. There's even an argument I just had, which is a paper by Mura Ayagan and Vicky Jay, which claims that the Ottoman Turks are responsible for the success of the Reformation. Because had the Ottoman Turks not been invading Eastern Europe successively, then the Holy Roman Emperor Charles V would not have been distracted by that. And he would have focused all his attentions on Germany and bringing the Protestants to heel. So can the deep roots literature explain Northern Europe? Because deep roots literature is something I'm somewhat sympathetic to for the listeners who don't know. The argument is that regions with a long history of statehood are better able to modernize because they basically have this, I don't know, historical memory of what a state is and are able to more quickly adapt to kind of modern conditions, which require uh, effective governments. But I mean, Northern Europe, right? Like Germany, which is one of the I don't know most kind of productive countries in the world, they've dealt with COVID among the best. They were right, like a bunch of small principalities until recently, they weren't really unified until the latter half of the, the 19th century. So how, how does the history of the deep roots literature kind of interact with and explain Northern Europe? Yeah. So my view of a deep roots literature is there, there are some, it depends how abstract and how broad brush you want to be. So in, in a sense, it's it seems like undisputably true that people who have no tradition of, of living through agriculture and states, populations which have come from basically hunter-gathering to modernity, without these intermediate stages. So think about Aboriginals in Australia, kind of indigenous peoples in the Americas, they seem to have be disadvantaged in various ways. Some of these ways are due to systematic discrimination and kind of policies of colonialists, for sure. But some other elements of these, they seem disadvantaged in other ways beyond that. And so the deep roots literature can, ex- can explain that because it can say, look, people, culture is something which evolves over many generations. And we're culture people in 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 kind of you know other societies like in the West and in parts of East Asia have may have developed these cultural adaptations to living in big cities, living in kind of more complex economies, and living under states. And so one element of a state of uh, deep roots literature says basically the state antiquity of your population kind of predicts performance. State antiquity being a measure of like how long have you been like your inherent state. And so that literature might also shed light on why, like say. After, in 1960, if you compare South Korea to, say, Nigeria, in per capita GDP terms, they're 
kind of comparable. South Korea has been devastated by the Korean War. It was colonized by the Japanese, uh, the people living in close to absolute poverty. Nigeria has been colonized by British people, also very poor. But if you look at their subsequent histories, the Nigerians struggle with autocracy, with civil war, and being, being ever, even despite having oil, they, they don't achieve sustained economic growth. Whereas in South Korea, despite this legacy of war, despite basically still being at war with the North, despite having a dictator, despite having problems of corruption, they're able to build a very effective economy. And so the deep roots literature shed, sheds light on that. So unambiguously, it has insights. The question then is, is what happens when you want to explain maybe more local variation? So yeah, Germany versus France. Even like, I, I don't know, like, right, like Sweden, Norway, it, or like they had some history of, of statehood, but it doesn't strike me as... Right. I mean, comparable to East Asia, where East Asian histories tend to be to be much longer. I mean, the UK, England, for example, had at least the kind of a thousand years. Spain also had uh, as a long history of, of statehood. Yeah, so I, I agree. I mean, it's certainly other things are going to matter. And at a, a level of this local variation, it's hard. how much history of statehood do you, do you necessarily need to have? I don't think we understand the, the mechanisms that well. And so some of the deep roots literature, it's, it's, they present very interesting correlations between something which happened a long time ago and something which happens today, but then the mechanism is going to be inherently more speculative. And so that's something where, like, I think we need, we need further research. I, I'm not super confident that it's going to explain, you know, 100% of the variation. Yeah, I, I guess that's fair. I mean, even with uh, Nigeria, right? Nigeria uh, was was largely ruled by the kind of Benin Empire until conquest by, by the UK. There was a history, and I, I don't know enough about kind of... To, to compare it to the history of, of statehood in, in Korea? I think sub-Saharan African polities were always quite ephemeral for various reasons, disease being one of them. So they do have like empires. They're, they're quite ephemeral. They, they don't last as long. They're not deeply rooted in local communities. I think local tribes and ethnic groups kind of are more like governing themselves, is my impression about most sub-Saharan African societies before colonialization. Yeah, and also, I mean, even when they never had a crop that was really easy to kind of mass extract, in the West was was wheat, in the East was rice, and, and there was nothing nothing comparable that had kind of extractive surplus that would allow for a state apparatus to, to exist for long, long periods of time. Exactly, yeah. So one, one of the interesting points, you actually make it quite early in, in the book, is you talk about kind of the influence of Locke and Spinoza and other early advocates of re- religious tolerance, but you, I guess, dismiss them a little bit. Dismiss might be too strong of a word. But you you kind of point out, like, ask, right, like, why? Okay, so we shouldn't say that these ideas led to religious freedom. Instead, we should say, ask ourselves, why did these ideas take hold at this particular point in time? So I guess, can you explain that idea a little bit more? Yeah, so we're pushing back on a more conventional kind of history of religious freedom, which is very much a history of certain thinkers and certain certain ideas. So that's like the, the, if you buy a book on religious toleration, that's the conventional narrative. And I think it's missing the institutional insight. But I I don't want to like over-exaggerate the point in the sense that even people who focus on history of ideas recognize that like these ideas have to be of a moment. They have to have advocates. They have to have supporters. In our book, we 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 go. I, I think I'd be the first to admit that someone like Locke, in particular, is for whatever reason he becomes in the 18th century like the go-to person to read about kind of toleration. Even though, if you read like the more detailed histories, there are loads of other people discussing similar ideas, and he's not even that influential in the late 17th century. But he his ideas become crucial. So by the time the founders in America are writing, Locke is very much on their minds. That. Ideas which don't have 
interest groups willing to advocate for them and willing to uh, push them into becoming policies are going to fall very flat. So there are a lot of hints that you have people who are really not into, like, you know, who, who are really have quite pro uh, diversity of religious opinions in, in like the late Roman period. And then later, maybe there are scattered hints in the medieval period of, of thinkers who think this way, who don't really believe religious coercion is, is, is worthwhile. But they never even really, you know, they never have any impact whatsoever. So why, why the change? And it's quite a gradual change, and we document the change. And it really is about interest. It's about persuading people, like, you know, rulers who are not necessarily invested in, in the intellectual discussion, but it's in their best interest. Yeah. So, I, I mean, this, this kind of relates. Stigler uh, had a famous paper, now I forget the name of it, basically argues that everything that exists is efficient, where it kind of takes the, 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 the market perspective, where the market perspective is like, how many shoes should be produced every year? And the answer is, I don't know, the market. And Stigler applies that to an institutional perspective, basically saying, look, if there is a particular institutional arrangement, then it probably exists for a reason. And, and Pete Leeson, also a GME professor, has really taken that idea to, I don't know, maybe an extreme, depending on how you want to describe it. All right. This is kind of, I guess, a big, like, I guess, how to balance the relationship between, yeah, interests and, and, and ideas, how they play off each other, what, what leads to what. I mean, looking, for example, at the history of social movements, a lot of social movements don't seem to take seriously the consideration of interests. So they might end up pushing on rope for a long period of time without realizing that, right, there needs to be some underlying uh, factor that, that, that can also drive, drive that change for which they're advocating. Yeah, so I think the problem with a stickler position is that it's kind of trivial. It's a bit trivial because if you subsume everything into the constraints and then you have the assumption that people are maximizing, then you get efficiency, basically. And so I think that normally when economists, like when Adam Smith was saying, you know, the mechanicalist system is inefficient, we didn't use that terminology exactly, but that's how we interpret it. He's saying something more than just everyone is maximizing subject to the constraints because you know if if a constraint includes my ideology or something like that then yeah it's it's efficient in that sense but i just don't think it's that useful i i think that i want to keep the not quite ordinary language but ordinary economist view that we can go around and say look that particular tax policy in medieval europe even though it made sense given the interest groups, given the alignment of things, given people's ideologies. It's an equilibrium. It makes some sense. I still want to be able to say, in some sense, a better alternative was might have been available had you changed people's ideology or interests. So I still want to say that's inefficient. I want to keep that word. And so that's why I, I, I don't accept. I, I think it's not too helpful if we, we, we go to this everything as efficient position. Yeah, and I think that also relates to, I guess, the question of multiple equilibria, where I think there is a sense that a lot of things are like broadly efficient, but might not be narrowly efficient. And there are some things, for example, in North Korea, where while it might be difficult to imagine a substantially alternative kind of modern day for Somalia, where Somalia has a history of, does not have a history of statehood, where right, like it's probably going to be relatively underdeveloped, no matter what kind of different historical contingency plays out. Given that South Korea, for example, was quite economically successful, that seems to play a important role. It's possible to imagine that that a different history plays out in North Korea leads to a lot more uh, economic success there. So, so this has been a, I guess, uh, kind of ongoing debate within the economic history and then maybe the history community with regarding the, the role of, of counterfactuals and and how they might be used. Can can you describe a little bit about, about what what that looks like? Yeah. So the position that economic historians take, which is kind of influenced by uh, developments in economics, is to think about natural experiments. So the idea goes back to kind of David Hume, probably, that if you want to 
saying does A cause B, you have to say without A, no B. So you have to run a kind of a counterfactual argument in your head. So that is to say every causal argument is a counterfactual argument. It doesn't mean you you know you can always run it. You can't run it. There are not that many natural experiments. And so sometimes we cannot really, you know, establish causality fully. But to explore causality, to think about causality, we should we should think in terms of counterfactuals. And so all economic historians who kind of are trained in economics naturally think like this, I think. In history, this book I mentioned already, Escape from Rome by Walter Schiedel, explicitly argues for a counterfactual approach to, to history. But strangely, historians have tended not to like this approach. They tend to associate counterfactuals with military history so what, or, or speculative science fiction history. What if Hitler had not been born? Did we still get World War II? And so there's a difference between controlled and uncontrolled counterfactuals. Like Hitler not being born is kind of an uncontrolled counterfactual. So many things could have happened. Who knows, you know, whether we get World War II or not. But controlled counterfactuals are going to tell us something about, about causality. That's the number one. But that approach to causality, which is kind of borrowed from the sciences, is not necessarily the approach used in conventional in conventional history, where they use the word a little bit differently, and their approach is, go, is going to be more narrative-based. So this, this, this tax to a, a distinction between kind of the use of empirical analysis and data versus the use of, the use of narrative. Uh, to establish causality, do you want to get a natural experiment, run some regressions, and try and show that there's a, there's a causal relationship here? Or do you want to tell a narrative in which the, the narrative is going to establish the causality through some way which is basically akin to storytelling it's like is i'm gonna make a causal argument in narrative form and is it plausible convincing enough given the evidence to the reader there's also been this i guess discussion within economics maybe within history as well but uh, gmu for example really likes analytic narratives while overall in, in economics there's much heavier focus on data and your book does a little bit of both it has some analytic narratives and it has uh, also also some data so how, how do you view the role of I guess, both data as well as analytic narratives in kind of understanding history and understanding what, what can be learned from that. So I think a lot more, there's a lot more data available now than there was in the past. And so we're able to do a lot more. So this is partly kind of due to like, uh, you know, people geocoding a lot of things, GIS data, and also more and more data sets becoming available. And like economic historians trained as economists able to make use of this, this data. So I'm all for using as much data as possible where, where available. But there's some questions which are where it's not, you never go ahead of data, basically. And so the analytic narrative, a narrative approach is still valid, valuable and um, being trained in like, you know, understanding sources, understanding bias in, in the sources, the traditional skills of a historian are still valuable as well. And you know, we, we, in our book, Noel and I really try to combine those approaches as we have done in our research. But the balance is, is somewhat a matter of taste. It's, it's easier to publish empirical papers in economics, for sure. And uh, I'm not sure historians would necessarily buy into a narrative approach that we sometimes we use as well. So it's because our narrative is often analytic narrative is gu- a narrative guided by economic theory. But obviously, I, I kind of believe both both approaches are useful. And sometimes you have to do one rather than the other, given the availability of of the evidence. Yeah. So one of the things I found interesting during my my time at GMU is seeing econ professors who would teach very similar ideas in class, then would have I guess widely different kind of political beliefs. And what I typically, I don't know, think that at least econ tends to inform people's political beliefs to a certain extent more than like other sciences, physics, biology, because with, I guess, the particular understanding 
of uh, economics, you have a particular view of, right, people tend to uh, agree on outcomes. They often disagree on the, the means to achieve those outcomes. But if you have similar understandings, then you have similar of economics, you have similar understandings of, of means necessary to get to those outcomes. So how do you think about, I guess, the, the relationship between economics, like political beliefs and, and, and how those all work together? Economics informs one's view of a constraint. So I think, I mean, if, if you study economics kind of seriously, and uh, certainly if you study at GME, there are certain policies which are going to be ruled out of court. So if you think about the revival of, of socialism amongst young people today that we, we see on Twitter, they're startlingly ignorant. They think, you know, East Germany was an awesome place to live and they don't understand why people would flee across the Berlin Wall to escape. So there are certain things, which not just economics, but economics and also history together, the two together, I think you know, often leave the two together, I go rule certain political ideologies kind of out, out of court to some to some degree okay like not not necessarily because you're pre- you know economics is nothing about one's preferences so one could have you know chauvinistic preferences but but economics is going to rule some things out of court just because it's, it's going to say look they don't work at least at least given current knowledge we don't think socialism can work maybe that could change in the future potentially that's something you could argue about but right now we don't think it, it really would work at least command and control style socialism so it's going to rule some stuff out of court it also i think inculcates an appreciation of markets and trade so economists could be less likely to be you know by local or ethno-nationalist, blood and soil nationalists, because we appreciate that, you know, autarky is actually pretty costly. So definitely economics circumscribes what's what, what's possible. But I think within that, once you've ruled out these extremes, there's a wide range of politics which are co- incompatible with one's understanding of basic economic theory. And there are a lot of open questions where the evidence, you know, the evidence is still out there and, it, you know, new, new, new information is coming out. So one is... I feel it's foolish to commit oneself overly to certain positions because you can end up looking like a bit of an idiot if your uh, if your ideology commits yourself to one 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 position very starkly. That goes for both sides uh, in a political debate. But I that's how I think about the relationship between between the two. And one of the other things I found interesting, uh, right? I came to GMU starting my PhD. I was pretty libertarian, and I am now do not consider myself as libertarian. I think part of the reason is classes like yours where this understanding of economic history really, I guess, inculcates this idea of the importance of state, of how states work together to the creation of markets. Obviously, there are markets that exist independently of states, but I'm not sure I had really fully understood how most markets are like fully embedded within statehood. So what is kind of the short version of the importance of economic history for, for libertarians who are somewhat skeptical of ideas like state capacity? Libertarianism, I, I think, is, is very appealing as a, as a kind of political ideology. It's, it's kind of, it, it appeals to quite simple moral, moral intuitions, especially for the more extreme versions of libertarianism. We have like things like non-aggression and, uh, and uh, the idea of just not, non-interference. The problem is, is taking that to the real world and libertarians tend to take for granted all the infrastructure which has been built up by basically societies which have had states. And so the idea that you can somehow make use of all these benefits and market infrastructure, the wide train networks, and then take away the enforcement, the state enforcement, and things will still be okay, and people won't defect. So one way of thinking about this is kind of like Hobbes versus Smith. So Smith has these um, tremendous insights into the benefits of markets, but he 
he takes for granted that there's a state there which is able to enforce contracts, enforce enforce the law, you know, rules of justice, provide basic public goods. And so the question is, what happens if you take those things away? Well, you might get a more Hobbesian environment. So one of the more bizarre kind of elements of libertarian literature is when you read kind of the idea of like Nozick or David Friedman or Mary Rothbard when it comes to things like private protection agencies. So they're very much keen to demonstrate an existence theorem. So like it might be possible for a society to function without a state because you have like private law enforcement potentially, but they never establish that it'd be better than having a state. Why don't the private law enforcement agencies degenerate into warlords, basically, or set up some kind of feudal system? So they have arguments against that. It's I just I'm just not sure they're very good arguments. Yeah, exactly. I think the arguments are not informed by the history or or even by experience. I mean, your your experience against like Guatemala or if you, you know, people who do development economics or they travel to parts of the world which don't have functioning states, I go appreciate that the there's this fragile ecology that we have in modern societies, and doing away with it, abolishing it, is 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 potentially costly, and we should earn a sort of caution there. To to paraphrase, uh, or apologies to Winston Churchill, but the state is the worst form of governance known to man, except all of the others. Yeah. Let me end with well, two questions. One, an open-ended one, right? Like, are there any takeaways from your book or your general research that you think apply to the modern world in terms of how state capacity is changing? In terms of, uh, I don't know, development economics. What 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 are these kind of modern takeaways? If if you want to share any. Yeah, so this government through... So one thing I, I, I didn't mention too much in this podcast was this idea of identity rules. So identity rules, uh, we emphasize a key to how low state capacity states function and because it's a very cheap way to kind of govern, govern a society. And so we document in our explanation of the rights of religious freedom, we document a transition from identity rules to more general rules. And that's a very kind of... That required a lot of state capacity to do. And then... If you look in developing countries, they often govern through identity rules. So a lot of sub-Saharan African states, for example, after independence, were governed by particular ethnic groups and they oppress other ethnic groups. And um, so identity rules seem to be a very pervasive way to govern a state. And actually, it's very hard to build general rules. And we can um, you can see the potential that even in Western societies, you can always revert back to reliance on identity rules. It's a convenient proxy. And the, the problem with that is that general rules are a basis for a lot of positive sum interactions, whereas identity rules have a tendency to be zero sum or negative sum. Like one, 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 one group wins, the other group loses. And they, they generate a lot of resentment amongst, you know, against the winners. So I, I think that's a problematic development in both rich countries today and also poor countries. Cool. Well, great. Thanks for coming on the podcast. I've enjoyed having you. Yeah, thanks, Malcolm. It's been great. Thank you for listening to the Charter Cities podcast. For more information about this episode and our guest, to subscribe to the show, or to connect with the Charter Cities Institute, please visit chartercitiesinstitute.org. Follow us on social media, cci.city on Twitter, and Charter Cities Institute on Facebook. I'm your host, Mark Lutter, and thank you for listening to the Charter Cities podcast. Charter Cities podcast.